70 million Americans have trouble sleeping at night. Are you one of them? How do you sleep at night? Um, you know, one sleep expert that I read this week uh, said this counterintuitive thing, that what you should do if you, one of the things you should do if you struggle with sleeping at night is spend 30 minutes each day in worry. Like, intentional 30 minutes of worry, right? Focus on your worries for 30 minutes at some point in the day, not when you lay down at night, some other time in the day, and, and write them on a piece of paper and get them done so that you're not taking them to bed with you. That was, that's one idea of a sleep expert. What do you do? How do you get to sleep at night? A lot of us, you know, um, a lot of people, turns out, more than 10% of those 70 million people, 8.5 million people take prescription uh, drugs, sleeping pills, for sleep. Um, what do you do? How do you sleep at night? And of course, you know, this question we're getting at is bigger than this because you could sleep fine and this issue is still the same. The issue we're getting at is what are you living for? What, are you str- what keeps you awake at night? Right? That's a pretty good insight into what's driving your life, what's driving you spiritually, what's keeping you awake. So you could say the same thing to someone who sleeps just fine. Say, well, what's driving you in the daytime to exhaustion so that you never have a problem sleeping? You know, what are you working? What are you chasing after? What can you just not let go? What is it? And uh, for the ancient Israelites, um, one thing that is for sure as we read this story, one thing that was driving them, one thing that would keep them awake at night or allow them to sleep peacefully was their firstborn. Maybe as we're reading this story, you're like, what is up with the firstborn? What is that all about? And if you pay attention, well, it's like the battle of the firstborns, right? The firstborns of Egypt, the firstborns of Israel. But what does it all mean? How do we get underneath it? I won't go too much into it because I value your time. <laughs> but I will say briefly that um, the issue basically is what, you know, what drives their whole existence. Where is their security? And there was a whole structure built up around the firstborn. So it was an ec- had economic and social purpose. The idea that the firstborn was the channel through which wealth passed and security passed. So you really could, at, as you're going to bed at night, kind of step over you know, your husband who is the firstborn and look and, and get, get down and lay down and sleep peacefully because he's breathing, the firstborn. Or step over your, your child there and it's your firstborn and, and you see the breath coming out and your firstborn is alive and well so you and your whole family is alive and well i don't know if we have anything close to this but it's a little bit like if all of us were told and i don't know how many of you have like a 401k but if you know everyone in america was told their retirement plan was was on a chopping block tonight at midnight i mean how would people sleep right that doesn't even get to actually the extreme nature of the firstborn for these people and so they're told that some blood from a lamb smeared on the sides and the top of a doorway is going to mean their firstborn is fine tonight. Now, how would you deal with that information? Wouldn't you be, okay, so you go through these rituals, if you're going to have faith that it really is, you know, going to work, you go through it, but then when you kind of get done, and wouldn't you be running out and double-checking, right? Did we... Did we, are we sure we did the blood thing? Did we, did we get that part? Um, and, and, and then maybe sending someone out, you know. Go check again. And, and look at the neighbor's door. Did we get as much as them? 
And imagine the destroyer flying through the air. Would they be able to see our blood on our door? I mean, can you imagine the anxiety? Is it going to work, right? I, I did a wedding, uh, the last time I did a wedding, and I quadruple checked the, the marriage license before I sent it in because I know it does kind of become a big nuisance if it gets sent back and it costs more money and they're really particular about it. If you mess it up and you have to correct it, they don't take any correction tape on it if anybody out there is getting married. Um, so it's a very important deal, right? So I give it to the minister who I'm kind of co-leading this with. Will you double check it? Give it to the best man. Will you check it? Make sure. And then I look at it again, every line, and then I send it because I, was, I wanted to make sure it would work. And that's the idea right? Is this blood on the door really going to work? Did he say anything about the windows? Did he say anything about the other entry with the back door? Do we got to, you know, is it going to work? Do we do it right? So I wonder how many um, Israelites that night uh, slept peacefully, confidently being assured that the blood was enough. And of course, that's a good way to talk about the confidence um, that's provided to the person who has faith in Jesus Christ, right? The same kind of language. In your life, right, what is your firstborn? What is the, what is, where is your security and are you confident? The Christian would say that Christ's blood is enough. And to get underneath this, really, you gotta, this story helps us get at two pivotal kind of pillar foundational things to understand the grace of God that comes to us. And you've got to enter into both of these. So first you've got to enter into the idea of universal guilt. And then you also have to enter into the idea of atonement. So first, let's enter into the reality of universal guilt. And someone says, now right away with that language, Mark, I object. And I object to the way this story portrays that everyone is, owes a debt to God somehow. How does that work? Everyone's guilty before God? Everyone's firstborn is at stake? Come on. I prefer to set my own standards, right? And how does that usually go? Are, how good are we even at following our own standards? Let me just ask that question. If there was an invisible uh, you know, recording device around your neck all your life and then you got to the end, you play it back, all the times that you set some standard for other people to follow, right? Oh, people need to do this. I, I hate it when people do this. Why don't they do this? All those things you said. And then you look back, did you live up to all those things? How well did you do? Some of you say, how, how well do I do in a single day, right? And, you know, I'll take an example from marriage because that's one of the most clearest things to me. P- picture a couple. And in the morning, they have some little tiff, some little argument about something where the first spouse is saying to the other, on this issue, you know, I just need you to change because you're, you know, it's a respect issue for me and how you show me your love. You have to change this. And this person is unyielding and demanding on this one issue. So the, so the spouse says, okay, okay, okay. They get to the evening and it's reversed. The other spouse says, on this thing, this thing that you keep doing, you're not showing me respect and I, and I need you to change on this. But then the spouse who was upset in the morning says, hey, whoa, 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 why do you have to be so judgmental and, and so you know, uh, self-righteous about things? I mean, I would maybe hear what you're saying if you would just say it more lovingly and gentle and gracious. Why, why do you talk to me that way? And then the person, the light bells go off, right? Or the alarm bells go off this morning and says, just this morning you were talking to me the same way, right? You can't, in other words, you can't even live up to how you want other people to treat you within the same day sometimes, right? And we catch ourselves in this. It's like that old commercial um, about not doing drugs. This this dates me, um, where the parents are saying to the kid, where do you learn to do this? And the kid says, from you, all right. I learned it by watching you, 
right? You know, parents who have kids, how does it go? Parents who do drugs have kids who do drugs, right? It's this old commercial. You know, we can't even live up to our own standards. And we have these examples in our lives all the time. Someone would say, you know, actually this is a, a weakness in the argument that we're just simply very highly evolved uh, social creatures, right? We're just highly evolved social creatures. That's, that's what humans are. The weakness in, in that is that why do we have this sense? Why have we evolved also this sense of an ideal which we can't even live up to? Why do we know that injustice is wrong? Why do we know that there shouldn't be war? Why do we wish? Why do we have standards that we can't even live up to? How do you explain that? Why is it as, as if, if we're highly evolved social creatures that just th those genes having to do with unselfishness just didn't quite evolve far enough, right? They didn't get there all the way. How do you deal with the fact that we have these high ideals that we can't even live up to? And of course, there's another way to look at it. Someone says it seems a whole lot, you know, it doesn't seem like we're highly evolved. It seems a little bit like maybe the better explanation is we're devolved. Like there's some echo or whisper of an ideal um, kind of somewhere there in our consciousness or in our soul or in our psyche that says you were made for something a little better. There's some trace left in us of something, and that's, of course, how the, what the Bible invites you to see is true, is that we are not, that we're actually fallen, that we've fallen from a higher ideal, and that's why we've still got that sense of we should be able to get somewhere a little better than this. This universal guilt. You know, actually, if you want to get anywhere with the gospel, with the idea of the grace of God for you through Jesus, you actually have to dive into the... You ha it's, it's hard, it's painful sometimes, but you have to look at the idea of universal guilt. You have to look into your own, in a sense, your own indebtedness to God. And to, in a sense, to feel the depth of your sin so that God's grace is as deep as it can possibly go, so that you get a sense of how deep God's grace and mercy is. If you go shallow, you end up having a shallow grace that just doesn't quite move you into action. Universal guilt. You know, the shocking part, someone says, oh, this story is so shocking because all these Egyptian firstborns are going to die. All these people are going to die. The shocking part, really, if you think about it, is that Israel's firstborn is vulnerable to the exact same fate that night. Isn't that amazing? Here's, they cry out to God. We're the oppressed people. God's gonna, God hears the cry. He's going to save them. And what does he say? Better watch out tonight or your firstborn is going to die. What? I thought we were the ones. I thought we were the ones you're saving. If God's judgment is going to present itself, there's some sense in which no one's safe. We're all in the same boat. The Israelites can't walk out of Egypt past the Egyptians and look at them and look down their noses at them and say, if only you would have been a more obedient people like us. They can't say that because it's not how it goes down. Similarly for the Christian, what's, if you're a Christian, what's your posture towards the world around you? To those who don't believe you know, the same things that you do, what's your posture towards them? And you think about that and you say, hmm, do I have any right to look down my nose? Do I have any right to take an approach of, of really seeing them as less worthy than myself? 
And, you know, if you're exploring Christianity or looking into it more from the outside, think about this point. There's no other approach to understanding yourself that provides, that I know of, that provides this kind of radical endpoint of humility. That there is nobody in this way of, of looking at things, the Bible's way of looking at things, there's nobody who's, who's, who you can just write off. You can't write off anyone. And you say maybe if, if you say, well, that's not what the Christians who I grew up with were like, right? They didn't have this, what, radical humility, right? Well, that's a valid point. But perhaps you can at least see this, that you can come to them with their own story and say and ask a very simple question. On what basis were the Israelites saved on that night of Passover? Was it because they had the Ten Commandments? Was it be- No, they didn't even have those yet. What, was it because they were better people? What was it because? And the answer is what we need to enter into, the second point, the atonement, because they were atoned for. So think about it this way. Um, the Israelites and the Egyptians, all of them, are used to putting their security in the firstborn. Okay, so they fall asleep at night peacefully because of the, the health and safety of their firstborn. But the way that the Bible presents things, it's a little bit odd. We don't, I don't have time to go into it fully, but basically they owed God, the way it's portrayed, they owed God a debt of the firstborn. In other words, all their security was owed to God because of their brokenness, because of their sin. But, so if we're following this progression, but God atones, this night of Passover, he atones for the firstborn. He, uh, he basically allows them to have back their firstborn. So now where's their, where's their security? Their security was in their firstborn. They owe it to God. God gives it, makes a way for them to get it back. Now where's their security? It's on God. And on this you know, silly thing of, of blood, a lamb's blood on my door that God provides. You see how that switch happens? You see, that's what atonement is. That's what this word of atonement means. And our problem with atonement is not necessarily that you don't understand it. I think you get that on a cognitive level. Our problem is we desperately need a very experiential atonement because God, quite frankly, a lot of the time just feels distant. Feels distant for a lot of reasons. Um, there's a lot of things in our lives that argue for God's distance, like the tangible nature of all the other stresses and worries and things that stand before us, right? These are bills. They're staring at me. They need an answer. God, I don't know. He's somewhere. Um, the tangible nature of our intellectual questions and doubts that just keep raging. And we say, God, where is God compared to this question that just keeps right there before me in my life? in the tangible nature of the problem of evil, quite frankly, at the, in the world at large or in your life, the, the suffering, the difficulty you're facing. That's right there. Where is God? And so what, you know, there's all this stuff that argues for God's distance in a sense. And in our doubt, what we tend to do often is we tend to add distance to distance. We tend to add distance to distance. We say, you know, this just, this God thing and this church thing, it's just not working. It's not what I need right now. I need a break, really, from this. And so you distance yourself from God. You distance yourself from church. You distance yourself from the sacraments, from the Lord's Supper. And you're actually distancing yourself from the the best experiential tools that God has given you to understand his grace and his atonement for you. 
That's what this is over on this table here. And you see through the story that God's basically just tenaciously obsessed with his people having an experience of atonement, not just having a concept of atonement to just lie awake at night and wonder, do I really believe in this or should I take a sleeping pill? Do, you know, do I, what do I do? I, I don't know. It's kind of out there. God, where are you? He wants to give us an experience of this. So imagine what you're seeing here in verses 6 through 11, so vivid, so outlined. The experience is given to us in such great detail. Imagine that you're the one sent out in the family to go find the hyssop branch. And you go out and you snap off this twig of this herb. And the rest of the day, your hand has this bitter herb smell to it. Every time your hand goes up, you remember this hyssop plant that you got for what you're going to be doing this evening. Imagine you're the one who gets to hold the bowl of the blood of this lamb that you actually saw and heard and saw slaughtered. And it's full of that lamb's blood and you're there when the other family member is dipping this hyssop branch into it and lifting it up to the door and putting it on in the right places and a drop goes down on your, in between your toes and mixes with dirt and you know foot sweat and it's just kind of sticky and it's there though for like the next couple of hours. It's there when you're sitting around the campfire and you smell the meat roasting. It's there when you're sitting there, stick in, staff in hand, stick in hand like they told you to do, like the instruction said, and you're eating quickly because, you know, usually the parents are saying, hey, slow down and enjoy your food, but tonight it's Passover. Eat quickly as we remember what God's doing, his salvation for us. And can you just start to sense that, the smells, the taste, the experience? Why is God doing all this? Because he wants us to have a radical, experiential, earthy sense because we're earthly people of what he has done for us, of his atonement. He wants it to stick. So don't, don't cut yourself off from God's gifts of atonement, experiential atonement. In fact, you do well to look at them as whether you have great faith or you're in great doubt as the tools, as the blessings, as the gifts to orient and to kind of orient your life and your schedule around so that they get inside of you through all your senses. So I got permission from somebody here at City Life to share this this week. Um, he writes to me uh, about kind of his faith and we're interacting back and forth and this is what he says. The love of God as demonstrated by the life and death of Jesus is a harder thing for me to grasp. Intellectually, I understand the reformational cries of sola fide and sola gratia, you know, by, by faith alone, by grace alone. Those are reformational doctrines. He says, but st I still find myself living according to a legalistic formula. In my life, I experience only small and occasional blessings and so correlate this with small grace and small faith. He goes on. I cannot deny that I am sometimes skeptical towards the good news of the cross because these things are very hard to think about and apply to my life. These ideas are always couched in eschatological terms, sometimes making the Christian life a matter of wait and see, which doesn't work for me because I think about these big questions all day, every day. And this is why I'm so obsessed with our practices of worship and the sacraments since they are slowly teaching me how the life of faith is a long process and that you need to continually seek out God's means of grace even if I don't really understand things. 
I read that and I said, I'm going to ask him if I can use that. That is exactly the point that I'm trying to put words to this Sunday. We come to, you know, what is the Christian Passover feast, you could say. And we come saying, oh, I have my, my credit card debt and my tears of grief and here's my loneliness, and this is what we're bringing to it. We say, ah, my, my unmet expectations for how life is supposed to go. And God basically says to us when we come up for the bread and for the cup, here, I'm your security now. Here, replace all of that, whatever that is, whatever you come in here with, replace it with my body, with my blood, in the context of my words along with my body, the body of Christ, my community. It's very experiential. To walk in, and you think about it, you're hearing the words, you're smelling the smells, you're tasting, you're feeling, you're chewing, you're swallowing. Which is why... I love it how Lauren Winner in her book, Girl Meets God, and I'll just close with this. This is how she puts it as she describes going to uh, her worship service uh, with the priest who she calls Myland by his first name. She says this, Every Sunday at about 11.30, I stand in front of Myland and cut my hands, and he says, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. And I say, amen. And I lift the bread of heaven to my mouth and I chew, and I swallow. I believe this receiving the Eucharist is the place where I most really meet Christ, the place where reality is most real. I believe it is the most important thing I do each week.